Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant. Uh, nobody's in here with us, so it's just the two of us and you, dear listener. We're just freewheeling Bob Dylan. Yep. Whoever that is. <laughs> Bob Dylan? Who? <laughs> oh, come on. And um, this is part two of two of a special two-part series. That's right. On HIV AIDS. Yeah, uh, if you didn't listen to the first one, I would suggest you do that. Yeah, you're, you're going to be lost. There's probably going to be a lot of in-jokes and referential jokes yeah. back to the first one. We explained it in the first one. Yeah, that's very important in like, the actual nuts and bolts yeah. of the disease. Don't skip ahead. Don't be lazy. No. Um, so, Chuck, we left off, you were talking, we talked originally about, um, you know, the, the different varying levels of risk depending on the type of intercourse, depending on the type of um, uh, group you're a member of. Yeah. Um, we talked about how it works, where it came from, what what could possibly be left to talk about as far as HIV can, is concerned. There's a lot. Oh, yeah? Yeah, because we did not touch on, and I know you're being coy, because oh. <laughs> I see all your notes in front of you. Oh, yeah. Jeez, um, look at all these. But one thing we didn't talk about that we're going to start with is uh, treatment. Yeah, that's a big one. It's a big one. Uh, you want to go ahead and talk about the AIDS cocktail? Yeah, so... Um, Back in 1991, a very, very, very famous basketball player named Irvin Magic Johnson, Mm -hmm. who played for the L.A. Lakers, announced that he was retiring from the NBA because he had been diagnosed with HIV. I remember the day. That was a huge deal. I I was at Georgia Southern for some weird reason that weekend. That is weird. It was a big deal. Yeah. Um, I mean, you talked, I think, last episode about Eazy-E catching it, Mm -hmm. and, you know, that that was a big deal. This was... Probably even bigger. I think yeah, it Magic was, Johnson was a bigger name than Easy E, or more widely recognized among more people. Yeah, he was a sports figure. He was straight. Mm-hmm. What the heck's going on? And I remember thinking, like many people at the time, oh my gosh, Magic Johnson is dying. Yes, I think a lot of people, most people who are familiar with this, thought, well, he's a goner in a couple of years. Yeah, but he kept living. Yep, and he kept living, and he kept living. He came back and played more basketball. Even I didn't know that. Yeah, and. If, you got to be pretty fit for that. Sure. Uh, and he kept living, and everybody thought, what the heck happened with Magic Johnson? And it turned out that he had access to what's now known as the highly active antiretroviral therapy, a.k.a. heart, which is now the standard of treatment for HIV. Um, and he had access to it a couple of years before it became widespread in the, I think, 1995. And yeah. it has helped keep him alive. He recently, he was 32 when he announced that he was diagnosed with HIV. Mm-hmm. And he turned 56 in 2015. That's awesome. That's a very, very long lifespan, especially for somebody who was diagnosed in the early 90s when yeah. people were still like, what is going on here? Yeah. So, correct. Uh, Magic Johnson got a, a head start. Not because he's super famous. Uh-huh. Well, that had something to do with it. But, I think I'm very rich. Well, but he was he was willing to. It was still in the in the experimental phase at that point. Yeah, but I'm sure there were plenty of HIV patients who were like, do yeah. whatever you need to do to cure me. Sure, but didn't have the money. So he got a jump on it, but he has not. I think a lot of people think that he is getting some other special treatments that no, no one else is getting, no, he or he's paying his way into something. Supposedly, there was a Kenyan witch doctor rumor. Yeah, he's getting the same treatment uh, that other people are getting, and there are plenty of people that have lived much longer than him. Oh, yeah. And uh, he's just the most famous, uh, 
And that's a good thing because he's an HIV activist and AIDS activist. For sure. And he, yeah, yeah, not to disparage anything about Magic Johnson. Yeah, of he not. he uh, definitely took that that label at a time when it was a, a, that was a gay disease. Yeah. And uh he became an HIV activist. We should say specifically he uh does not never has had AIDS. He his um T helper cell count never got to the um 200,000 or less mark. Yeah. So he's HIV positive and he is still um like we said in the last episode it's a chronic disease because reservoirs develop. Um and I believe it was a couple of years between diagnosis and uh treatment for him. So those reservoirs had a chance to get a foothold. Yeah. But he got it early enough that he his lifespan is it's it's basically that what was it 24 years that he's been alive since diagnosis. Mm-hmm. That's pretty normal for people who were treated with the heart cocktail in a reasonable time after being uh, yes. uh, diagnosed, which they're finding that window of time is intensely important. Oh, yeah. We're going to get to that, man. That was a great article you sent. So we're talking heart? Yeah, heart or cart or just art. Whichever you want to call it. I call it art with the, or heart with the double A's. I call it the AIDS cocktail. Oh, yeah. That's another word for it. Uh, so each one of these drugs, and we talked about in part one, is very specific to its task um, to basically disrupt uh, as many stages of the process as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, should we go through these? Yeah. Um, NRTIs, nucleoside reversed transcriptase inhibitors. Yeah. They basically block the ability to replicate. Yeah, remember the uh, reverse transcriptase takes the... RNA, yeah. the instructions for the viral um, creation, and turns it into DNA, which is then inserted into the CD4 plus T cell nucleus, yes. right? Yes. So you block that. It's a big problem for the, the HIV virus. Yeah. It's a big problem. <laughs> it is. Uh, NNRTIs, non-nucleoside reverse transcription inhibitors, uh, they disable a protein, uh, another protein requiring it to replicate. Yeah. Another disruption. PIs, protease inhibitors. So protease was, um, that was the one that actually cut the polypeptides into their individual components. So, yeah. You had a long chain of enzymes that made up right. these viruses. That's the part I didn't get. Right. And then you cut them up. So the thing that cuts them up isn't there. You just have all these long chains and they build up. And yeah. It's basically like um, Lucy's running the, the, the chocolate factory assembly line <laughs> or something there. Uh, then you have entry fusion inhibitors. They block the ability to enter those CD4 cells to begin with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then finally, integrase inhibitors. Um, once they get in that CD4 cell, uh, we talked about the inserted that genetic material, and it basically blocks the ability to do that. Right. So the current cocktail, recommended cocktail, are two NRTIs in the shaker, one NNRTI, and a PI, and then either a, a integrase inhibitor or a ritonaver, which I don't know what that is. Do you? No. Let's just say it's the the key. Let's say it's the uh, the bitters in the cocktail. Nice. It makes it bright. You put it all in there. You shake it up. You've got your AIDS cocktail. Once you put that into place, uh, if you catch it early enough, you can bring your mortality rate just about to normal. Yeah. 
Like it's just, it's a chronic disease. Yeah. Yeah. And, and your immune system will probably not become so compromised that you're going to die from something. Right. You need to be on it for life. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and everyone is supposed to be on this cocktail. Uh, although if you have hep B, um, have a recent CD4 count below 500, or if you are pregnant, then you are given uh, priority. Right. And it's all going to cost you about ten to $12,000 a year, although that is supposed to increase. Yeah. And the reason why you have to stay on it indefinitely is because we said in the last episode that um, HIV produces reservoirs of inactive virions that just spread throughout the body and accumulate. And even when you're treating what amounts to one outbreak, Another one can come very soon afterward, and that's what makes it chronic, right? Yeah. With heart, it will eventually get all these reservoirs, mm-hmm. but it takes, I think we said, 60 to 80 years. Yeah. It's a very long time, right? Yeah. So there's been some suggestions as to how to eradicate um, this disease a little faster yeah, there's using different, heart. Different ideas, which is great. I mean, they're... Really smart people are coming up with different strategies. One of them is kind of nuts, but also which cool. one? The one that uses prostratin, I believe, is what it's called. It basically goes in and says, um, "Oh, you're an inactive HIV cell. Well, I'm going to activate you." Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's basically making a, an HIV outbreak take place. But yeah, but you're doing it while you're under heart care, right? Yeah. The way I thought of it was, it's like flushing out those invisible. Reservoirs, but the only way to to flush them out is to activate them to get yeah. them going. So the T cells actually know it's there. So that, that's scary sounding. It is. Yeah. That the heart treatment also disrupts their function, so it starts them up, and apparently they don't stop and go back to sleep or go dormant again once they start up. Yeah. So it starts them up. The heart treatment um, keeps them from doing what they want to do normally, and then also the cell that they're infecting will die sooner than later and just get it over with. So it's basically a way they're trying to figure out to accelerate an HIV infection while in the presence of highly active antiretroviral therapy. So right. it keeps you from actually dying from this accelerated HIV infection. It's pretty cool. Yeah, so that's one strategy. Does even, do they call it anything? They should call it something cool, um, like the wildcat the, or something. The gunslinger, yeah. yeah the gunslinger. Uh, <laughs> wildcat. <laughs> All right, I think we should get to this next. This is, uh, you sent an awesome article from the Pacific Standard called Getting to Zero, Are We Close to a Cure for AIDS? And the city of San Francisco is doing something, uh, they're, they're pretty radical out there in San Francisco. Sure. You know? Yeah. All those hippies out there. Mm-hmm. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to make their city the first city with no new infections, no deaths, and no stigma. Uh, and they call the program Getting to Zero. And uh, they're doing this in a, in a lot of ways. Um, some of the background here is there it, historically over the past few decades hasn't been a ton of money allocated toward finding a cure for AIDS. Yeah, and not because for various I, reasons. I think a lot of people, especially initially, are like, well, because it was gay disease. Yeah, uh, I think as it spread out and started infecting uh, more non-gay people and more non-gay white people. Yeah, it started to get a lot more funding, but. It also didn't get a lot of funding because a lot of people were like, we can't cure this. It's an incurable disease. Yeah, and I think um, I think cynics might also say, like, it's uh, you make a lot more money to keep people on drugs for life than you do curing yeah. something. Yeah. But from what I could tell, the main reason was because uh, 
it was such a new scary thing. They put all of their efforts into trying to save people who got HIV and right. coming up with these these this drug to- uh, cocktail. Sure. However, things are changing, which is good. Um, in 2008 and 2009, uh, there was a very cool case, uh, Timothy Ray Brown. He was... The uh, Berlin patient. Yeah, the second Berlin patient. There was another one in the mid-90s. I didn't know that. Yeah, there was... Uh, an, an, I, I know everything. <laughs> there was an anonymous Berlin patient uh-huh. in the mid-90s who, uh, I think, uh, got HIV and then no longer had HIV. Wow. But... What's up with Berlin? I know, seriously. It's a cool city. Yeah. But Timothy Ray Brown was a special case. He's an uh, American that was living there as a translator, uh, HIV positive, and started taking medications. Uh, and then about a decade later, found out he had leukemia. Right. So his doctor... Very clever person. Dude. Uh, Jiro Hooter, or Hero. Let's call him Hero. I think Hero. <laughs> he said... He had a very weird, unique idea. Uh, idea. He said, why don't we see if we can take, there are these people out there. 1% of Caucasians. Yeah, 1% of people who have a protein. Caucasian people. Uh, CCR5, which basically makes them immune to HIV. They lack that protein. Yeah. That's a protein on the surface of your uh, T helper cell that the HIV virus docks with. Can't dock, can't infect. And very few people have this 1%. He said, why don't we try and find someone like that who can donate their bone marrow. Which is where stuff like that is produced. Yep. And to this guy and basically basically replace his immune system with with this one percenter. Yeah. And not that kind of one percenter. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, I'm going to be rich. Right. I got rich bone marrow. So he did that. They found someone uh, that had that that was a good match and it worked. It worked. Like, he was functionally cured of HIV. I think, like, fully cured is, was like, they keep testing him and testing him. This is, I think, 2008 or 2009. Yeah. Um, and they Still keep testing no the guy. No signs. Yeah. Um, I don't know that enough people have been cured of HIV AIDS so that they, it's like with, um, with cancer, I think, if you're five years without, right. um, any kind of growth, it's considered remission. I don't think they have a standard like that yet. No, they don't. Um, but so they keep testing this guy and he's, it's not coming back. These reservoirs are not becoming active again. It doesn't right. appear that he has HIV or AIDS any longer. Right. And the doctor was excited, obviously, but he also <laughs> knew, like, well, we obviously can't go around replacing, you know, people's immune systems with these 1%. Sure. But what it did was it kickstarted New Hope. And now yeah. all of a sudden, uh, all of a sudden there was new funding for trying to find a cure. It, and it was what they call a proof of concept. I think we mentioned last episode, it showed that AIDS can be cured. Yeah. Uh, before this, only about 3% of um, AIDS and HIV funding uh, went to cure research. Um, now there are new grants totaling $14.6 million a year. And Obama uh, in 2013 said, you know what? How about another $100 million toward a cure over three years? <laughs> what? Is that funny? It's just <laughs> the, what $100 million used to be and what it is today. You know? Oh, yeah. It just sounds like, sure. Yeah. Just throwing money around. Yeah. Um, go, go get yourself some nice funding. <laughs> uh, so we talked, I believe, in the first episode about catching it early. Um, there's another story here. Basically, how it works now is you can get diagnosed with HIV, and until your T cell count falls below a certain number, you're just like 
not on any drugs. Like you have to get sick before you get treated in most cases. Is that right? Well, yeah, that was the old, I mean, that's what it says in this thing you said. Oh, that was the old, the old, I see. Yeah, yeah, that was the old guard. I got you. Yeah. The, the new, the, the bleeding edge. <laughs> no. Is that right? No. Leading edge. <laughs> okay. The leading edge, um, is quite the opposite of that. Yeah. Because they found if you get to it super early, like those first few days and weeks after you get HIV in the bloodstream is when it's most dangerous. Very critical. Most easily spread. And they found that if, uh, People who take these drugs right then are 90% less likely, 96% less likely to pass it on to a sexual partner. Here's why. Again, one of the insidious, pernicious characteristics of HIV infection is that inactive reservoirs build, which makes it a chronic disease. Yeah. And again, when you first are exposed to HIV, your immune system can mount a pretty decent defense on its own. Yeah, you don't have those reservoirs just yet. Right. And it's those reservoirs that eventually overwhelm your immune system and can lead to your death. If you're treated with heart very early on after infection, those reservoirs never have a chance to build. Yep. And that infection that you do have is helped with this extra therapy and your immune system can defend against it. Yeah. And it's, it, these, these people feel like the time is such a critical essence that oh, yeah. at Ward 86, which is a legendary, the, um, United States at least first, uh, dedicated AIDS ward. Uh, AIDS clinic yes. at San Francisco General. They're very cutting edge. They've led a lot of uh, treatment programs for um, HIV and AIDS over the years. But they have this program now where they will pay for a cab for you to be brought from your doctor's office where you were just diagnosed to Ward 86 to be treated right then with heart to begin treatment. Yeah, it's a doctor, a researcher called uh, Hiroyu Hatano. Another hero. Another hero, you're right. And uh, the program is RAPID, uh, which the first <laughs> letter also stands for RAPID. <laughs> yeah, I know. I don't think that's okay. Well, we'll give it to him. RAPID is the Rapid Anti-Retroviral Program Initiative for New Diagnoses. And like you said, basically, it's a treat and uh, a test and treat program where as soon as you know you've got it, they want to knock down any obstacle in your way, including that first cab ride. Yeah to get there and just go get going on that stuff so you're not spreading the disease. So we got more on treatment and stuff like that, uh, and we'll get to it right after this message. All right, Chuck, there's another, um, there's a group out there running around too who are saying that they are working on an AIDS, or an, I should say an HIV vaccine. Yeah. You sent me this one. Um, they are studying what are called controllers. And these, these controllers, they'll, they get infected with HIV. It's in their body and they never get sick from it. Yeah, they're it, called, uh, long-term non-progressors or elite controllers. Elite, I'll bet they prefer to be called elite controllers. Sure. Uh, and they've estimated anywhere from 1 in 200 to 1 in 500 people. Uh, they don't think Magic Johnson is one of these people, which we talked about. No, he just responded well to yeah. heart. But there was a thought that he might be. Um, and there's a project called the Immunity Project. It's a nonprofit that seeks a cure by studying the blood of these elite controllers, um, which I don't know why it's controversial, but I have seen that 
other researchers are saying, like, don't do that. I don't or, know if they or, think it's or it's not going to work or yeah, whatever. Yeah, maybe that's it. Maybe they think it's not resourced well. But they figured, I mean, they, they feel like they figured out what makes elite controllers, what gives them that trait. Um, apparently, there's some proteins that um, show these people signal proteins in their body that that show the immune system where the best place to attack an HIV virus is. Yeah. So, so it's genetic. It is, but it's also like it's not like there's something weird with their own cells. It's like their antibodies are um specialized to search and destroy HIV viruses, yeah. which is weird. But that's definitely who you want to study. Why not? Yeah. Um, Throw an extra 100 million at them. <laughs> Uh, this other part of this article, for, uh, article from Pacific Standard, you said it was interesting. There was a case of a French girl. Uh, she's now 18. She was infected with HIV from her mother during pregnancy or delivery. Uh-huh. Immediately started on, uh, started on the antiviral drugs, uh, stayed on them for six years, and then she stopped taking the medications for almost a year. Mm-hmm. Usually when that happens is HIV just like really gets going again and yeah. it's back on the move. Because of the reservoirs. Yeah. Didn't happen in her case. Yeah. Um, and so she stayed off them for, uh, and she's been undetectable for 12 years. So now they're thinking maybe one thing we can do is get people on the drugs super soon. Right. And then wean them off of the drugs at a certain point and see if that works. Basically. Yeah. Like keeping good close eye on them, obviously, not just being like, all right, we'll see you in a decade. Let me know how it goes. Right. I mean, why not? So that's pretty promising too. Yeah. Uh, there's another, uh, potential strategy, which is called shock and kill, and that is flushing out the particles uh, into the circulatory system. So is that part of the one we talked about earlier? I think so. The prostratin, where is that the same thing? it activates dormant uh, HIV cells to get them to attack. I, I would say if it's not the same drug or the same research group, it's the same principle. Okay. You know, trying to sure. awaken the sleeping beast. And make, give it some big problems. Uh, patient Zero, we teased that in the first episode. Yeah. I thought this was super interesting. Uh, you referenced the book and movie and the band played on by, uh, the book was Randy Schultz about the early days of AIDS and HIV. Mm-hmm. And, um, it is, there's now a book out called, uh, Plain Queer, uh, and that is plain as in airplane. Airplane. Terrible. Not, yeah, I know. Colon, Labor, Sexuality, and AIDS in the History of uh, Male Flight Attendants. And um, there was a man named uh, Guton Dugas. Gaten. Gaten? Mm-hmm. Oh, is that an A? Yeah, G-A-E-T-A-N. Okay, Gaten Dugas. Dugas. He's Canadian flight attendant. He's Quebecois. That's Canadian. <laughs> the people in Quebec just made me a national hero. Uh, they, uh, in this book... Basically, there was a big fear that this book wasn't going to sell and get any attention. So the book publisher... Yeah, because it's like 600 pages of methodical reporting yeah, on the, the, during the discovery Reagan era. Of, of HIV AIDS. Yeah. And um, the, uh, the the editor now, or the publisher, um, has come out and said, you know what? We kind of um, resorted to yellow journalism by <laughs> allowing and leaking this supposed patient zero, this gay flight attendant, mm-hmm. good-looking guy mm-hmm. who was... Very sexually active. Mm-hmm. He claimed to have uh, more than 2,500 partners over a 10-year span mm-hmm. from uh, the early 70s to the early 80s. He's flying all over the world. Yeah, obviously he's a flight attendant. Yeah. 
Um, and they uh, let the story leak to the New York Times. Was it New York Times or New York Post? But not only did they leak the story, they really, they really built up or overstated the guy's role as depicted in the book, too. Yeah, basically, like this guy brought AIDS to the United the West. States, yeah. to the North America. Like, this guy is patient zero. They, they. I think in the book he does compare him to uh, Quebecois typhoid Mary. Right. In a way, because he did he did say, like, I'm not going to not have sex. Are you nuts? Like, sure. there are some stuff that this guy definitely did do. And he was one of the early patients. Yeah. But to lay the AIDS epidemic in America at this one guy's feet is patently unfair. Yeah. And untrue because yeah. he was not the first person uh, he was. They did trace early on when they were tracing it around the country. They labeled um, patients uh, with L.A. as in Los Angeles or New York, like mm-hmm. L.A. 4, mm-hmm. N.Y. 3 yeah. is what patient number and where they were. And originally they said that uh, his designation was O for out of California. Yeah. Eventually that became zero. Uh, and he got unfairly pinned with spreading AIDS. He was he was part of a smallish group of very traveled, promiscuous gay men right. that uh, did help spread AIDS. But um, he was not... The the reason he was not patient zero. He was a reason. He was not a the reason. Reason right, but unfairly labeled. Um, but in the end, it ended up bringing a lot of attention to it at a vital time. Yeah, so I think it, that's it's why this weird conundrum. That's why the editors of the or the editor of the book is admitting it now. He's saying like you know ultimately it was a a good move because it it helped brought a lot uh, bring a lot of attention. Yeah, to this through promotion of the book. But it was at the expense of this one guy. Right. And he died in um, March 30th, 1984 of uh, kidney failure. Very sad. Uh, I think we need one more break, correct? Yeah. And then we'll come back and we'll talk about um, some other celebrities who have helped put a face to AIDS and um, the AIDS quilt. Yeah. Right for this. Chuck, we're back. Yes. So you tease celebrities. Everybody loves celebrities. Uh, Everyone does love celebrities. And uh, (laughs) someone who is a celebrity who dies of AIDS is no more important than um, any other person who dies of AIDS. But they are vital to putting a face on things and to getting media attention and basically slapping people in the face who think, I can never get AIDS, Mm -hmm. you know? Easy E we mentioned. Yeah, it it definitely makes people it gives people pause. I didn't know I don't I didn't remember that some of these people died of AIDS. Um, Rock Hudson was a big one. Uh, absolutely. Uh, Arthur Ashe, I'd forgotten about that. Oh yeah. Uh Freddie Mercury, obviously. Uh-huh. I was watching uh you ever seen Queen live in Montreal? I don't know. Maybe. Was he wearing um a, like white jumpsuit? Uh white p- jeans and the Superman tank top. It's, yeah, it's okay. like yeah, it's, it's like it. Queen's it's, famous yeah. concert movie. Uh-huh. That was on Palladium the other night, and I've seen that thing probably a dozen times. Mm-hmm. Every time I'm knocked out. Oh yeah, Queen was great, and Freddie Mercury was just such a rock star, dude. It was like 
and at the time when I was a little kid, I didn't know what gay was, you know. Sure, you just knew you liked Freddie Mercury. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. You know, I was the same kid who drew the Village People in uh, crayon, and my mom was like, "What's going on there?" <laughs> um, but Freddie Mercury just—he still blows me away. Yeah. What what a fantastic, awesome rock star! I wonder how that movie's going to be. Sasha Baron Cohen's working on. He about dropped him. out of that. He came back. Oh, he did. Yeah. Oh man, back on baby. Well. I think he he looks enough like him, and he can do great impressions, but he's just tall and lanky, uh, so that's the only thing that bothers me. Wasn't Freddie Mercury pretty tall? No, he was a little guy. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Huh. Spitfire. So, you know, whatever. It's not like uh, Christoph Waltz playing a guy from Nebraska in <laughs> Dude. Big Eyes. Oh. <laughs> did you see Man. that pile of doo-doo? Yes, I did. That movie bugged me so much. Every moment of it. I'm just a nice man from Nebraska. It was so <laughs> like he didn't even try to copy. That's a great he didn't try to hide his accent at all. No, he didn't because Tim Burton probably wasn't even on set most of the time. Why? Because he's phoning it in. Yes. Yeah, he stinks now. I did look up though, like why in the world did he cast him and Tim Burton? Because he got some flack for it, and he was like, "I just it was more about the spirit of the guy, not that he had a heavy Austrian accent." Yeah, <laughs> missed it a little bit. Maybe re- redo the character a tad. Then yeah. there's all sorts of stuff you can do. Or um, was it Cameron Crowe who cast uh, um, what is her name? The white girl is an Asian character. What? In a, like the most recent, like his most recent movie, Aloha. I didn't see yes. that. Who? I can't remember her name. She's a very famous actress. The, the redhead. Uh, yes. From Birdman. Yes. She plays an Asian character. Yes. What? Yes. Really? Uh-huh. All right, I'm going to have to look that up. Yeah, let's go read about it after this. All right. There was the one tangent for the two-parter. Yeah, we got a lot in there. So back to uh, celebrities who have passed from AIDS. Um, Liberace, of course. Uh, Gia. That was another thing, too. Have you seen uh, Behind the Candelabra? Yeah, great movie. Great. Agreed. Are you going to say Gia the model? Yeah. Yeah. That was a big one because that was a, a woman. From, hers was from Needles, right? I think so. She's a pretty uh, big heroin addict. Uh, Perry Ellis, fashion designer. Okay. Uh, Mr. Brady himself. Oh, yeah, Robert Reed. Yep. Great guy. Uh, I remember Pedro Zamora from The Real World. That was a big deal because... I don't remember that. I think each one of these cases kind of opened the eyes of a different segment. Yeah. Um, and Pedro, he, he was, you know, MTV's Real World mm-hmm. before it got really bad. Mm-hmm. He was one of the, um, I guess it was the San Francisco one. Uh, he helped up in the lives for a lot of teenagers and kids. Yeah. Because it unfolded uh, in real time on television. Oh, I didn't know about that at all. Yeah, it was a really big, big thing. Huh. Um, Anthony Perkins. Yeah. Psycho. Yeah. Um, Brad Davis from Midnight Express. Uh, he was straight, but he was a drug user. Huh. So that kind of shone a light on that. Uh, and then uh, Keith Haring, the artist, Tom Fogarty of Credence. John Fogarty's brother got it through a blood transfusion. Man. So between he and Ryan White. You're right. Like, those are all really different segments. Yeah. And I think, I mean, that's why I'm mentioning them, because I think each segment, like, uh, it just shines a light to a different group of people. Right. Who might be fans of theirs. Um, so you're saying we're going to talk about the AIDS quilt, right? Yeah. Are you, we there? You got any more? Celebrities? No, I mean, there are more celebrities than that, but we just went through a handful. Sure. Uh, the AIDS quilt. So, have you ever seen the movie Milk? Yeah. The, um, one of the main characters, Cleve Jones, um, 
is a real-life person, as was Harvey Milk. Who played Cleve Jones in the movie? I don't remember. I want to say it was like the, the dude from um, Big Bang Theory, but it's not. <laughs> I've never seen that show. But it looks a little bit like him. I, I don't really watch it either, but you know, I'm aware of pop culture. You know what I'm saying? Sure. So anyway, um, Cleve Jones was a guy who was a friend of Harvey Milk's, and um, Harvey Milk was very famously assassinated by Dan White. Yeah, and Neil Hirsch played him. The Twinkie Defense. I recognize the guy, yeah. but I, I don't know what else he's been in. He was from the Dogtown and Z-Boys movie, and among many other things. Okay. Right. Um, so uh, Harvey Milk was killed, and in his honor, starting in 1978, I think, Cleve Jones organized a candlelight vigil for him and uh, George Moscone, the mayor, who was also killed by Dan White. Yeah. Um, but Harvey Milk was, a, a he was, I think, the first openly gay politician in San Francisco. So he was a, a gay rights hero for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so to honor his memory, they would hold, or Cleve Jones would organize these candlelight vigils. And um, at one in 1985, he found out that um, about uh, like more than a thousand San Franciscans had died of AIDS. And uh, he, during organizing the candlelight vigil, he asked people to write the names of those people down on um, little cards. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And then he took the cards, he and some other volunteers, at the end of the, the vigil and posted them on the federal building wall. And apparently it looked a lot like a patchwork quilt. Boom. And he thought the little light bulb went off over yeah. his head. And Cleve Jones said, I think we should make a quilt. Yeah. Because they've been trying cool. to figure out a memorial for um, uh, people who had died of AIDS. Yeah. I didn't know how uh, organic it was and how it started. And I just think it's such a neat story. That is so Cleve you know? Jones. <laughs> it is very Cleve. Uh, in June 1987, he, um, well, the first panel he created uh, in memory of his friend Marvin Feldman. Mm-hmm. And in June of 87, he teamed up with a guy named Mike Smith and some other folks uh, to organize the Official Names Project Foundation. And uh, they started pouring in these these pieces of quilt, these patches, mm-hmm. started coming in from all over the country, then all over the world. And in uh, October of 1987, uh, they displayed it for the first of what would be uh, one, two, three, four, five times in its full glory in Washington, D.C. Yeah. the which first is a big deal. The first time it was the size of a football field. Yeah. The last time they displayed it, Chuck, was when? Uh, 1996 was the last time. And it was much bigger, wasn't it? Yes, it covered the entire National Mall. That really drives it home. Oh, yeah. Well, which is the whole point. Right. Like, look how massive this thing is. Uh, It has been on tour. Um, More than a half a million people visited the first weekend, and since then, it's gone on many tours all over the country, all over the world, Mm -hmm. and uh, has raised a lot of money. I think so far, uh, over $3 million. Is that right? Oh, yeah, easily. It seems like it would be more than that. Sure. But this is just through this one project. Yeah, it says the Names Project Foundation has raised over $3 million. I'm surprised that's all. Um, In 1989, it was nominated. The quilt itself was nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. That's so cool. uh, And it's still the largest community art project in the world. And uh, if you have not seen the documentary, Common Threads, colon, Stories from the Quilt, you should. Yeah. 1989 won uh, Academy Award for Best Documentary. And uh, it has become a symbol, and it all grew out of that one neat little idea from that candlelight vigil. Pretty yeah, cool. Pretty cool indeed. And the reason they're not showing it in full anymore, I think, is because it's too big, which is sad. Yeah. You know? Yes, it is. Like, there's no space large enough to hold it. Yeah. Well, that's not true. 
you could probably go out to the desert somewhere. Oh, yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, but then it'd get all sandy. Yeah. You don't want to do that. You <laughs> go to the beach, you'd spend weeks shaking that thing out. Yeah. It'd be tough. God, I can't imagine, like, transporting that. Yeah. I don't know how they do it. I'm sure it's in pieces. Yeah, I guess they may re-sew the whole thing back together every time. I don't think they sew it. They probably just put it together. Oh, I see. That's that's my guess. I'm not sure. Okay. I doubt if they fold it up as one piece, though. <laughs> right. Throw it in a truck, you know? Yeah, well, it would very quickly reach to the moon. Yeah. Have you ever heard that? You know, like you can fold a paper, normal oh, yeah, size yeah. sheet of paper several times, and very quickly it, it reaches right into outer space. Wait, I thought something couldn't be folded more than a certain amount of times. That's a lie. Is it? Was that a don't be dumb? Yes. What was the number of times it was supposedly? Seven. And this girl in high school uh, somewhere in like the early 2000s proved it is possible. She did over like 11 or something. Oh, wow. But the paper that she used like went from, you know, paper thin to that uh-huh. after, you know, 10 folds. And so she did the math to see um, after like 20 or 50 folds or something like that, it would hit the moon. After like 120 folds, it would expand further than the visible universe. Wow. Isn't that cool? And now she volunteers with the AIDS quilt. Yep. Project. Folding it. <laughs> That's right. Uh, you got anything else? Nope. No, nope. I think you're right, though. We could have made a whole entire podcast series out of this, right? Yeah. I hope we did a good job. Uh, we tried. We definitely did. Uh, if you want to know more about HIV AIDS, um, you should go research that, especially for this AIDS Day week. Um, you can start by typing the word AIDS into the search bar at HowStuffWorks.com. And since I said search bar, it's time for listener mail. Yes, and if you are sexually active, go get tested. Yeah, that's a great way to celebrate um, AIDS Day. No reason not to. Um, celebrate, observe. How about observe? Observe. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little more solemn than celebrating AIDS Day. I think celebrating awareness is okay to say. All right. Thanks. That's, that's, I know what you meant. Thanks for letting me off the hook. All right. This is going to be called Listener Mail at the End of the HIV AIDS Series. Cool. Hey, guys. Just recently came across your podcast. Thanks to recommendation from Holly and Tracy. Stuff you missed in history class. That was nice of them. Thanks, guys. I uh, just finished listening to 10 Most Disturbing Medical Procedures, and I have a story. My husband recently uh, was diagnosed with... Uh, Meniere's disease. Uh, while he was being diagnosed, he was sent to an audiologist. Uh, an audiologist took him to a room no bigger than a closet and strapped him into a chair. The lights were then turned off and the chair spun while the audiologist, audiologist? Audiologist? Audiologist. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you had it right. Uh, the chair was then, uh, while um, she asked him questions, the chair was then reversed in direction and he was asked even more questions. These were basic questions like what's your wife's name, children's names, etc. He was even asked at one point to say a boy's name for each letter of the alphabet, starting with A and ending in Z. That'd be a fun little test. Zeke. (laughs) Anton. Uh, I found it amusing because you had mentioned in the podcast how the whirly chair was no longer in use and you couldn't find anything about it. Uh, Well, today it's called a rotary chair Mm -hmm. and is used to study the workings of the inner ear. Thought you would find it even more amusing after airing that show how some people are treating the rotary chair as a new invention. Neat. So I think Heather here is saying that the rotary chair is the same thing as the whirly chair. It's alive and well. Yeah. Thanks, Heather. Yeah, thanks a lot, Heather. And uh, best of luck to your uh, husband. <laughs> yeah, he's still stuck in the whirly chair going, uh, David, Elias, <laughs> Frank, J. 
She's like, Frank doesn't count the short for Francis. Start over. <laughs> uh, if you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet to us at SYSK Podcast. You can join us on Facebook.com slash Stuff You Should Know. You can send us an email to StuffPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And as always, join us at our home on the web, StuffYouShouldKnow.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 